You are now listening to the January 30th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and Divine Intervention. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Heart and Soul listeners, this is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Today, we will share the story of Jehoahaz, the 11th king of the northern kingdom of Israel. There isn't a lot written about him in the Bible. His accounts are found in 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. Jehoahaz was the son of Jehu, the 10th king of Israel. After becoming king in Samaria, Jehoahaz reigned in Israel for 17 years. Do you remember the story of Jehu, whose life we shared three weeks ago? That was the father of Jehoahaz. Just to recap, God chose Jehu as the king of Israel in order to judge the house of Ahab. Jehu was the king who eradicated Baal in Israel. Unfortunately, however, he did not follow God's laws faithfully. He retained the sin of Jeroboam, the inaugural king of the northern kingdom. These kings worshipped idols themselves, and they caused their people in Israel to commit the same sin. Therefore, God handed the eastern territories of Israel over to Hazael, king of Aram. Like father, like son, Jehoahaz, also did evil in the sight of God. 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 2 tells us how Jehoahaz followed, like his father did, the sins of Jeroboam. In the next verse, 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 3, the Bible tells us that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel because Jehoahaz and Israel continued to worship idols. As it appears in the Nasby version of the Bible, the phrase of anger being kindled may not actually do justice to the type of anger God was exhibiting at the time. The original Hebrew phrase haranoff has a deeper meaning of God's anger and how it burned against Israel. It describes a deep fury. Yes, God was furious. Verse 3 tells us how God was furious with Jehoahaz and Israel for their blatant and unashamed idol worshiping. For that, God would repeatedly give Israel into the hands of Hazael, king of Aram, and Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Even after such unrelenting punishment from God, the people of Israel did not turn from their sins and did not repent and mend their ways. God continued to use Aram as his instrument of punishment against Israel into the time of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Eventually, the oppression from Aram became unbearable for Israel. Finally, Jehoahaz relented and sought God. The Hebrew word used to capture the state of Israel in Jehoahaz is halah. First, here is how 2 Kings chapter 13, 
Verse 4 begins in the NASB translation. Then Jehoahaz entreated the favor of the Lord. The original word hala is translated as entreated. It has the underlying meaning of being in pain, in sorrow, in mourning, and in a state of pleading. The degree of Aram's oppression continued to mount and became unbearable. Jehoahaz and his people were in pain, or hala, and they finally came to their senses. They realized their wrongdoings and praised to God in desperation for forgiveness and deliverance. Upon his prayer, God relented and listened to Jehoahaz's requests. Here is the latter part of verse 4 and verse 5 from 2 Kings chapter 13. And the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Aram oppressed them. The Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Arameans, and the sons of Israel lived in their tents as formerly. God acknowledged the oppression being inflicted on Israel and the pain and suffering they were being subjected to by the Arameans. The gracious God listened to Jehoahaz's prayer, and he sent a deliverer for Israel who liberated them from under the hand of the Arameans. The Bible does not describe in detail who the deliverer was. So out of curiosity, who might this deliverer be that God sent to save Israel from the Arameans? Theologians offer three possibilities. The first possibility is that it was Adad-Narari III, the king of Assyria at the time. According to the historic record, Adad-Narari III attacked Aram, which meant the Arameans had to retreat away from Israel to defend their own country. If so, the Arameans could no longer oppress Israel. The second possibility points to prophet Elisha. In 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 14 to 19, Elisha intervened and helped Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, to defeat the Arameans. The conjecture here is that there is a possibility that history repeated itself. Since Elisha was known to have helped Joash, Elisha might have also made it possible for Jehoahaz, Joash's father, to defeat the Arameans. The third possibility is that it was Jeroboam II, the grandson of Jehoahaz. In subsequent years, Jeroboam II was known to be successful in expanding Israel's borders into the Aramean territory. Therefore, one might surmise that it might have been possible for him to have already started to defeat the Arameans during the time of Jehoahaz. Regardless of who the deliverer might have been, what is more important here is that God save Israel from the hands of the Arameans. What do you think happened after that? One would certainly hope that the Israelites finally recognized one true God and finally walked steadfastly with their Lord. Sadly, that didn't happen. Even though they experienced God's deliverance from the Arameans' oppressions, Israel did not turn back to God. Let's read the verse from 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 6. 
Nevertheless, they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, with which he made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained standing in Samaria. God appointed a deliverer for Israel and saved Jehoahaz and Israel from the hands of Aram. However, they still perpetuated their sinful way. They did not leave the sin of idol worshiping. As evidence, they did not remove the Asherah pole in Samaria. For their sins, God raised the king of Aram and destroyed Israel and made them like the dust on the threshing floor, leaving less than a mere fifty horsemen, ten chariots, and ten thousand foot soldiers. God judged the people of Israel who deserted him after being delivered. Given their stubborn adherence to idol worshiping, they all deserved to die. Nevertheless, God did not exterminate them completely. God promised Jehu, Jehoahaz's father, that his descendants would continue to reign in Israel to the fourth generation for having been God's instrument when rendering judgment against the house of Ahab. The faithful God kept his promise to Jehu, even though Jehoahaz and Israel remained in the sin of idol worshiping and offended God. God still waited for Israel to turn back to him. Jehoahaz worshipped idols just as his father Jehu did and continued to remain in the sin of causing the people of Israel to engage in idol worshipping. But when he repented his sins and asked God for forgiveness, God showed compassion and delivered Israel. Jehoahaz experienced God's forgiveness and deliverance. Unfortunately, he did not turn back to God even till the end. Jehoahaz worshipped idols, did evil in the sight of God, and died in his own sins. That concludes today's episode. We will continue on with the story of kings next time. Have a blessed week.
up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Fear God, Not Government. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. First Peter chapter 1 verse 1. Peter, say it out loud together, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, 
in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold than perish, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about this grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not you, not themselves, but you in the things that have been announced to you by those who preached the good news to you from the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. God, we praise you for your word. We praise you for the living hope we find in it, and we pray that you would help us today to find deeper understanding of the living hope we have in it. So that leads us to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, where I want us to consider two words today. Two words. Yet ultimately, there's one command in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 17, that I would argue supersedes everything. And it's where we left off near the end of 1 Peter 2, 17. The Bible says, honor everyone, and then comes back at the end of the verse just to make clear that we're not missing everyone includes the emperor. So honor everyone, including the emperor, love the brotherhood, and fear God. Fear God, not the government. So what does that mean? And why is this command so important for us? Well, let's think about this word, fear. It's familiar to each of us in unique ways. In fact, let's do this. Why don't you take a moment, wherever you are in this room or 
or you are on the other side of listening, watching, just spend the next 60 seconds in silence and contemplate this question. What are you most tempted to fear in your life, in the world? Like if you're going to be afraid of anything in your life, what would it be? Just take 60 seconds to contemplate that. If you're taking notes, maybe write it down. So go for it. Just, just let this soak in. What are you most tempted to fear in your life? I obviously don't know all the things that may have come to your mind. Maybe it's fear of heights or flying or spiders or snakes, venomous pests. Maybe it's a fear of germs. Maybe it's a fear of COVID. Maybe it's a fear of losing someone or something important to you. Someone you love, losing a job, or possessions, or a reputation you have, or fear of losing your health or your life. Maybe you fear getting hurt or losing control. Maybe you fear failure or rejection or being alone. Maybe you fear the unknown. There may be specific fears you're facing in your life right now. Maybe you fear what we're facing in this election. I've heard people say, I'm afraid of what might happen if this person gets elected. I've heard other people say, I'm afraid of what might happen if that person gets elected. I've heard some people say, I'm afraid of what might happen whoever gets elected. But does God call us to think this way? Or is being afraid of anything actually the opposite of how God calls us to think? I guess it means what you depend by fear, right? Like take snakes, for example. If you are standing in front of a king cobra snake, the largest venomous snake in the world, and you have chills going down your spine even at this moment, it seems appropriate not to be too casual or playful, doesn't it? There seems to be a God-honoring, even God-given level of appropriate fear. But even still, a king cobra is not ultimate, is it? Job chapter 26, verse 13, talking about God, says, By his breath, the heavens are cleared. His hand pierces the fleeing serpent. So even a king cobra is under the authority of God, which means ultimately, you don't need to fear a king cobra. You need to fear the one who created and rules over the king cobra, right? Isn't this what Jesus means when he is speaking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10? So, Peter, who writes this command to fear God, once heard Jesus prepare him and the other disciples for the persecution they would face for following and proclaiming Jesus. And Jesus said about persecutors in Matthew chapter 10, have no fear of them. Don't fear them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, your persecutors, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, instead, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, Jesus said, don't be afraid of people, even governing officials who can kill your body. 
be far more afraid, ultimately afraid, of the God who determines your eternity. Which is why Peter now writes in a passage about government in the middle of persecution, fear God. Think about it. Then why in a world where legitimately there are all kinds of things that we are and should be concerned about, a world where there are many things we find ourselves anxious or worried about or afraid of in our lives, our families, in our country, why do we have this command? And it's not just here, it's throughout the Bible. Over a hundred times we have this command to fear God alone and nothing else. Nothing but God. Three reasons, and I'd encourage you to write them down, why we fear God alone. And I want to let them lead us to sing and worship in fear before the God who is worthy of that fear. So first reason, we fear God alone because of his ultimate authority. Isn't this what Peter is saying in this passage about government? He's saying we're submissive citizens of a government, but we don't fear government. No matter what happens in government, we fear God. It's exactly what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 10. Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. It's an issue of who has ultimate authority. So yes, maybe the government has authority to kill your body, but that authority is not ultimate. God has authority over your body and your soul. Everything you might be tempted to fear is under the ultimate authority of God. Any and every fear in your life, whether it's the fear of losing someone, something close to you, fear of getting hurt, failing, being alone, whatever it is, you proclaim God is sovereign over this, God is in control of that, therefore you have no reason to fear. Follow this. This is so important because we fear God alone, who has ultimate authority, we have total security in him. This is why scripture can say, Proverbs 14, 26, whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress. Oh, I want you to feel this fortress in your life. Specifically, us to feel this fortress before an election where no, none of us knows what lies ahead. In fact, let me, let me take you one more place in God's word. Let this soak in. So Isaiah the book of Isaiah, God is warning his people all throughout that book not to be afraid of what the world fears and even what the nations of the world specifically might say or do to them. So God says in the very beginning of the book, Isaiah 8, 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Fear God. Then specifically later, in light of threats to God's people coming from among the nations, God says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, fear not Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Don't be afraid of them. Look at your God who has ultimate authority over the nations. Look at him. Fear him. So keep going in Isaiah chapter 40. He says, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would, oh, sorry, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its boasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Are you getting this? The nations are like a drop from a bucket. So I'm, I'm hearing this this week. I'm like, all right, 
Here's a bucket. It's filled with water. Okay? So, put it right here. Let's take a dropper. Let's put that in the bucket. I want you to think about the nations of the world. 200 or so United Nations. All of them. Big ones, small ones. All that goes on them, in them. Now picture those nations. And here's the way God sees them. That's the nations in the hand of our sovereign God. Is there anything you need to fear in that? That would be ridiculous to fear that. In fact, he says, what does he say? Behold, they're like accounted as dust on the scales. So then I was like, okay. So here is my PhD dissertation. Full of dust. And no one, literally no one has read this since I wrote it. So here's a scale. It's a scale. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put the dust from this dissertation on the scale and just see the effect. Huh. It's like not registering at all. Like when the scale starts, it turns on. It's not even turning on. That, that's the nation's. For our God, and these illustrations are no exaggeration. Look what he says next. There as nothing before him, as less than nothing. How is that even possible? If I'm holding nothing in my hand and you say, I have less than that, I'm like, I don't get it. What does that mean? This is God making a clear point to his people then and to you and me today that he is in control, sovereign over it all, over countries and elections and presidential candidates. God says a couple verses later, it's he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. (laughs) Emptiness. Could God's word be any clearer to us on this day? Do not fear what happens in nations or elections. Hear the word of God. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. God says to his people, fear not for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 13, I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. I say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. I, the one who holds the nations in my hand, am your helper. You have nothing to fear. Because we Fear God alone who has ultimate authority. We have total security in him. Christian exiles in this country, we are dwelling right now in a secure fortress. Now, we could stop here, shut things down, but there would be a problem if we did because the fear of God is not a good thing and this command to fear God alone is not a good command only because of God's authority. Think about it. There are many examples you or I could think of when it comes to authority figures who are fearful but not good. Think of evil despots throughout history who have wielded their authority in evil ways. Think of an abusive husband or dad 
or any other person in any position of authority who wields that authority in wicked ways. I know that some of you have fears in your life precisely because of people who have abused authority in your life. So is authority the only reason we fear God? Because if that's the case, then fear of God might be extremely unhealthy. But it's not. Because God's ultimate authority is not the only reason we fear God. Second reason we fear God alone? We fear God alone because of his ultimate justice. Think about this here in 1 Peter chapter 2. We've just been commanded to honor, even submit to an emperor who was sadistic in his rule in the first century. Nero, I mentioned last week, week, had his stepbrother, his mom, and his wife all arbitrarily killed. An emperor who would one day throw Christians to wild beasts to be devoured, who would hang Peter himself on a cross. Yet Peter is saying, don't be afraid of him. Why not? Because Peter knows what Jesus had taught him in preparation for this moment. Go back to Matthew chapter 10. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This should be 26 through 28. Can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, please follow this. This is so, so, so important. As followers of Jesus, we do not expect this world to be perfectly just. Instead, we wait for perfect justice in the world to come. I'm going to say that one more time because the ramifications of this are massive for the way we view evil and suffering in this world and in our lives. As followers of Jesus, we do not expect this world to be perfectly just. Instead, we wait for perfect justice in the world to come. Now, I want to be really careful as soon as I say that to emphasize this doesn't mean we don't desire justice in this world, that we don't do justice according to God's word. We absolutely desire and do justice in this world to the extent that we are able. Yet, we know that this world is full of injustice. We don't expect it to be perfectly just. As followers of Jesus, we are patiently waiting for the day when perfect justice will reign. After all, this is a little further down in 1 Peter chapter 2. See how Jesus sets the example for us in this. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. In other words, Jesus was perfectly innocent of all evil, anything wrong, completely innocent. Yet, 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But watch this. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was not surprised to experience unjust treatment in this world. At the same time, he knew as he was being accused, tried, beaten, and crucified, he knew who would have the last word. He knew his father 
is judge of all, and his justice will reign one day. And knowing that, Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. And so can you and me as followers of Jesus. Follow this. Because we fear God alone, who has ultimate justice, we can completely trust in him. This is why Exodus chapter 14, verse 31 says, the people fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Do you see this? A right fear of God goes with trust in God, especially in a world of evil and injustice. For all who have experienced, seen evil and injustice around you or done to you, and you have struggled, maybe even now still struggle with the sovereignty of God and the evil and injustice of this world, hear God saying, that he will bring ultimate justice and you can trust in him for that. And for all of us amidst an election, even as we rightfully desire and wisely work to do justice in our country, let us not expect perfect justice to be present in the United States. Let's expect for the battle for justice to be constant in this world, even as we patiently wait for perfect justice to come. This is why Martin Luther King Jr., amidst the battles against racism around him, made his famous statement that's now engraved on his memorial downtown that the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends toward justice. That quote has been taken out of context in so many ways politically to advocate for all kinds of causes, ironically even unjust causes according to God's standards of justice. But Martin Luther King was not ultimately talking about this world. He described this world similarly to what 1 Peter 2 is saying here. King said, evil may so shape events in this world that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross. But that same Christ will rise up and split history into A.D. and B.C. So that even the life of Caesar must be dated by the name of Christ. Yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Maybe more appropriately, it ends in justice. Which is, so follow this reason to fear God alone. Because God alone will have the last word. To every person within the sound of my voice then, please hear this closely. You will one day stand before God as your judge. And he alone will have ultimate authority on that day to invite you into everlasting joy with him in heaven or to cast you into everlasting torment in hell. When you die, which could be any moment for any one of you, for me, you or I will face God as judge, and he will be just. The problem is most people are banking on relative good on that day to get them into heaven, i.e. they weren't as bad or evil as so many other people. 
basically, most people are banking on scales coming out on the right side. They're hoping, believing that their good will outweigh their bad. But that kind of thinking is deadly and will be eternally damning for everyone who thinks that way, according to God himself. Because you and I, we have all sinned, rebelled against God, turned from God's ways to our ways, and one sin, one act of rebellion against the infinitely just God of the universe is worthy of infinite judgment. Which is why our relative good works, our scale of good works, is nowhere near sufficient to save us from our sin against God. The only way, God says, that you can be saved from his judgment is by his grace, which he offers freely to all in his son, Jesus, who came to die on a cross for our sin. But apart from true life-entrusting faith in Jesus, you will experience everlasting destruction in hell. And this is absolutely reason for fear. This is absolutely what matters most on this Sunday before an election. Not who will win or lose this week, but where you stand before the God who ju will be your judge. This is why at the height of a great awakening, Jonathan Edwards preached one of the most famous sermons in history. I can't improve on his words. I just want to say them right now because there are some of you and you know who you are who have not been taking God seriously and truth been told whether you've been running from God or may, maybe playing games before God with a religious facade maybe for many years. Hear these words to anyone, everyone who is not truly trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life, Edward said, God holds you over the pit of hell and he looks upon you as worthy to be cast into the fire. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire at every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you woke again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you haven't gone to hell since you have sat here. Yeah, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop down into hell. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in and put your trust in Jesus. Fear God. Nothing in this world. Fear God who will bring ultimate justice in the world and in your life. And trust your life to him right now through faith in Jesus. For, so follow this, the last reason we fear God alone. We fear God alone because of his ultimate goodness. So put it all together. Yes, fear God, Matthew chapter 10, because God has authority and justice to destroy both soul and body in hell. Yet God 
with his authority has sent Jesus to pay the price for sin on a cross. And God in his authority has raised Jesus, his son, from the dead. And God in his authority declares that anyone, no matter what you have done, who you are, if you will trust in Jesus, his son, as savior and Lord of your life, he will rescue you from your sin, reconcile you to himself so that you might enjoy eternal life now and forever with him. So that you might, so now hear the words of Psalm 34, verse eight, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, here it is. Fear the Lord, use you his saints. For those who fear him, watch this, have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Man, woman, student, fear, revere, stand in awe of the God who is the author of all good things. And as you fear him, find yourself feasting at his table forever and ever. That's the picture. Because we fear God alone who is ultimately good, we find everlasting delight in him. Now it makes sense, full circle. When we read Nehemiah chapter one, verse 11, it talks about servants of God who delight in fearing God's name. How do you delight in someone you fear? Here's how. When the one you fear is the fountain of ultimate goodness and you realize he loves you. And he's made a way for you to enjoy him and his goodness forever and ever, which means you now have nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing to fear in this world. So on this Sunday before an election in our government, amidst whatever else is going on in your life, I want to call you to fear God. God it's calling us, 1 Peter 2, 17, to fear him. To, in the words of Psalm 2, 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. What does that mean, rejoice with trembling, rejoice with fear? How, how, do you, how do you rejoice with fear? It means to rejoice right now because brothers and sisters, our security is not found in this candidate or his party. Our security is found in a king and his kingdom. Rejoice with fear because our trust is not in a constantly changing government. Rejoice with fear because our trust is in the coming justice of God. And ultimately rejoice with fear and trembling because our delight is not in who wins an election. Our delight is in the one who holds the winner and you and this nation and all the nations of the world and all our future in it in the palm of his hand. Fear him with security, trust, and delight in him alone. Here's this word straight from God to you and me today. Psalm 33, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. In other words, do not fear kings or armies or nations because they cannot save you. Do not look to the United States or presidential elections for what you need. Look to God. And where is God looking? Very next verse. Behold, 
the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Let's pray. Oh God, may your eyes fall on us right now as a people who fear you, who hope in you, who trust in you, who look to you for our security, who delight in fearing your name. And even right now, in this room or wherever we might be, as we sing to you, shout to you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we pray that you would cause fear of you and all these good ways we have just seen to rise up in new ways. Help us to sing and worship you with appropriate, reverent, fearful awe. God, I pray, I pray that for anyone, anyone, everyone listening right now who does not know Jesus is Savior, that right now, even as we sing, that this would be the moment where they say in their hearts, Jesus, you are my King. I trust in you to save me from my sin, to lead me as Lord of my life. They would feast at the table you have offered them today. And they would fear you for the first time. So be glorified in our singing and our worship now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602-866-8999. That's 602-866-8999. The following program is called Divine Intervention. The life the king had lived was intense. He became king at the young age of 25, and he devoted his young years solely for the nation and people. Due to his father, King Ahaz's misrule, the nation was in a crisis of life or death, and it was spiritually corrupt and impoverished. The king courageously enforced a religious reform. He purified the temple and removed the idols and restored worship. He opened the closed temple door, and the people began to come before God again, and the Passover was revived. That's right. King Hezekiah obeyed everything God desired and pleased. The king may have been able to do this because of the influence of his devout mother, but it was more because of the lesson he learned from his father King Ahaz, who disobeyed God and walked the path of destruction. The Bible says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. On the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign, he suffered a severe illness. God said the illness would lead to death. Hezekiah holds on to God. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. <laughs> Hezekiah wailed and desperately prayed to God. God then added 15 years to Hezekiah's life. 15 years of grace. How did Hezekiah spend his valuable time every day? Hezekiah lived more faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and had done what is good before the Lord and prepared for his death during the 15 years he received from God. This is what we would have hoped for, right? However, when we look at the content in the Bible, it doesn't seem like he lived this way. The king began to change. It's hard to know exactly when it started, but his heart was definitely not the same as the past. In the past, he was upright, passionate, and pure before God. Instead, he had now become relaxed and carefree, and this was an unfamiliar appearance. He may have seemed optimistic, but that was only his outer appearance, and his heart was gradually getting farther from God's grace. God was everything in his life, and Hezekiah lived in unity with God, but from a certain point, his heart began to be divided. The writer of the Book of King says the king's heart was not the same as before. That's right. Hezekiah's heart was aloft, and he became complacent. When the king of Babylon sent his envoy to Hezekiah due to his illness, Hezekiah made a big mistake. 
Through that mistake, Hezekiah's deep inner thought is revealed. The king of Babylon was curious about King Hezekiah of Judah, who annihilated the newly rising great power of Assyria's large army of 185,000 in one day. He wanted to know about Hezekiah's military power and resources. The king of Babylon used Hezekiah's illness as an excuse to send envoys. Hezekiah was content with the fact that the king of Babylon sent envoys due to his illness. Also, he was flattered by the well-mannered envoys of Babylon who brought him letters and gifts. Although he said God is the one who protects Judah, he opened the storehouse where all the armory and treasures were gathered and showed the envoys of Assyria his military power and wealth. These are all my achievements thus far. Look at all the many riches and armory I have saved. Isn't it great? You would be in trouble if you underestimate Hezekiah, king of Judah. This is the kind of king I am. Doesn't his action contain such sound of his own praise? Truthfully, it wasn't Hezekiah's military power or strategy that brought victory in battle. It was done by God. The only thing he did was to pray to God in tears. It seems like he has forgotten about this fact. When one departs from God, one walks the path of foolishness and has a pathetic life. When one departs from God, discernment disappears and wisdom is gone. When one departs from God, the heart becomes aloft and all one can see are people and not God. Hezekiah had forgotten about this. God saw how Hezekiah changed, and through the prophet Isaiah, God rebuked him and gave him a message of judgment. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. But look at Hezekiah. Hezekiah's reaction after hearing such a fearful word is shocking. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. Will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? What does this mean? Doesn't it mean... It doesn't matter what happens to his descendants or if the nation falls as long as there's peace while he's living? As long as it's peaceful while I'm living, I don't care about what happens next. How could he say such irresponsible words? Was the past Hezekiah a different person? How could a person regress to such degree? The problem was the 15 years he received. During that time, his spirit sunk into a deep sleep. His body's life was lengthened, but his spirit was dying. The only thing he did during his lengthened time was to bring upon the birth of his son Manasseh. When we look at Manasseh, we can see how Hezekiah spent his life. In the history of Israel, Manasseh is recorded as the most evil king and the dismal prelude to Judah's fall began with Manasseh. God in His grace gave him 15 years. 
Hezekiah used that valuable time in complacency, just living for himself, and ended his life in an embarrassing way. I use this expression to describe Hezekiah. YOLO Have you ever heard of the expression YOLO? Y-O-L-O stands for You Only Live Once. This is a popular saying among the new generation. It means we don't have a tomorrow, so let's live today in fun and pleasure without any regrets. Throw away the worries of the future and enjoy today. This is the sense of value and life motto of YOLO. If you look at the world's sense of values, YOLO's outlook on life doesn't seem too bad. We can't say it's wrong for one not to worry about tomorrow and live happy today. God even said not to worry about tomorrow. Christians also pursue the life's virtue of living today diligently in the best way. However, we do not worry about tomorrow because there's no tomorrow, but because tomorrow is in God's hand. We do not worry because we leave tomorrow to God. Today is important not because tomorrow is not guaranteed, so let's enjoy today to the fullest, but because in the future there will surely come a time when how we spend our time in life will be accounted for. A life of YOLO is a life without God. It may look fancy and showy in people's eyes, but it's a life full of void before God. In a life of YOLO, I am the master instead of God. When God called us as His people, He didn't call us to live a life for ourselves. He called us to live a life of being a channel of blessing. He called us to live a life of responsibility like a priestly king in a holy nation. God's will for calling us is for us to not live a selfish, complacent life for ourselves. The Christian's duty is to live life with vision for the next generation and God's kingdom and live a life of influence. I want to reinterpret the meaning of YOLO in a new way. YOLO, you only live once, so cherish your time. YOLO, live today to the fullest for God's eternal kingdom is here. God's YOLO is to live today like it's your last day. If you don't forgive today, there is no tomorrow to forgive. If you don't love today, there is no tomorrow to love. Isn't living like this the true YOLO life? YOLO. That's right, you only live once. Therefore, I hope you will live as if it's your last day.
psalmist says that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And with the gift of this new day comes a brand new chance to worship the Lord, tell Him in a fresh new way how much we love Him, how we praise Him. We love you, Lord. Let's sing like this. Thank you for a brand new day, a brand new chance to stand and say I love you, how I love you. Oh, thank you for a brand new day, a brand new chance to stand and say I love you. Help me find the words to say. Oh, help me find the words to say to tell you. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.